maybe you've been out for a couple of weeks and, and you said, I thought we were in the book of Ephesians. What in the world happened as the question was posed to me earlier this week? How did you get so incredibly sidetracked? Well, well friend, this is what happened because you asked and I'm in a place to tell you. Around about, oh, I'd say verse 21, 22, 23, the end of the first chapter there in Ephesians, I began to be incredibly struck with this idea that God had given Jesus Christ to the church, but I didn't think that we were really spending enough time meditating and, and, and letting that penetrate our hearts. And, and, and you say, Matt, why did you think that we weren't letting that penetrate our hearts? Because I knew that I wasn't letting that penetrate my heart enough. And I began to think that, that if it's not penetrating my heart enough, if I'm not reflecting on this enough, then, then perhaps some of you as well, you aren't allowing it to really penetrate your hearts, transform your hearts. This idea, this radical concept, that this God who, who lavished love and mercy on us gave his son, gave, turned over, surrendered his son to establish the church, and he did this at a great point of sacrifice. We recognize that it's the death of Jesus Christ that established the church. And so with that, it is on us to get at how we represent that here at Richrest. How do we adequately even approach doing this well? How do we do that? And so we looked last week at the story of the Good Samaritan, and it comes away with this amazing take-off that we don't seek to restrict those we do good and show mercy to. In fact, we do good and we show mercy to everybody God brings across our path. And it's this incredible, total, awe-inspiring thing that God has called us to. And that's what it is to be the church. And this morning, we're going to look at, at three parables that are, that are bounded together within chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke. And again, we are asking ourselves the question of, how do we do church? How do we do church well? And how do we do it here in Greenville, Texas? Now, what I want you to understand is that and for most of you, you've probably gone through Luke 15 at some point in your life, and you've looked at the story here of the prodigal son, and you've taken that as kind of your mantra for maybe raising children. But what I want you to see, and what I want you to leave your mind open to the possibility of, is that all three of these accounts, all three of these parables are located together for a reason. For a reason. Let's look at the first couple of verses of chapter 15. Luke writing, he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told a parable. And he goes on, and he, in fact, he tells three. Now this is the situation. This is what's taking place. Jesus is traveling around. He is teaching people. And what we see here is that in the midst of his teaching, two groups of people primarily are drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners. And you hear that, and you've probably read that many times in your Bible, or you've heard this discussed. Some of you don't like the IRS, so anytime you hear anything about taxes, you say, I hate those folks! What's Jesus doing with them? Okay? you got your own issues, you need to talk to somebody about that. But what's going on here, in, in, in this shorthand, Luke is saying that these people, who those in the community associated worth with, weren't going to Jesus. Those people in the community... That, that had a, a, a byword associated with, uselessness associated with, terribleness associated with, those are the people that are drawing near repeatedly. They're coming near to Jesus over and over again. For what purpose? They want to hear from Jesus. The people that Jesus was drawing near to probably aren't 
the types of people that you would be gathering together as friends. And if somebody came to Joe and said, Joe, why don't you go and find 10 people you want to be friends? These most likely would not be the type of people that would make the first on his list. And I say, Joe, go and gather friends in line with Jesus. And he says, oh, okay, that's where you're going. Jesus is gathering people to himself that those in his community did not value. In fact, we read that. The scribes and the Pharisees, they see these people coming near to Jesus, and the text tells us they murmured, they grumbled. They are angry. They're burning inwardly. They're so upset that he would spend his time with these rejects, that he would spend his time with these people that had no value. They were making no good contribution to society. And so they ask themselves this question, or they say these things, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's not that he's just talking and lets them draw near. He is raising and elevating sinners and tax collectors, turncoats and infidels. He's letting these people come near him. He breaks bread. He has these people. And effectively, if you're going to say, he lets these people come into the innermost part of his house and he has table fellowship with them. This is culturally inappropriate. Jesus is really rubbing these guys the wrong way. He doesn't want, they don't want Jesus doing this. They don't want him, in some sense, elevating these folks, endorsing these folks. So they ask the question, what's, what's Jesus on about? What's he doing? Jesus, perceiving their sense of self-righteousness, tells this story. Look here at the first one. Jesus, in some sense, looking at their heart, he asks this question. He says, what man among you, having... A hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one he's lost until he finds it. Now, you don't have sheep. I don't have sheep. But what he's asking this question is, in some sense, is a rhetorical question. In, in some sense, he's putting it forward and he says, look, wouldn't every single one of you, at the end of the day when he brings the sheep back and he puts them in the fold and he's like, all right, I got Ted, I got Bobby, I got Limpy, I got no hair, I got, uh, 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 I got Spot. Uh. And he makes it all the way through and he counts 99 of them and there's one missing. Wouldn't all of you go out and try and find that sheep? Like, wouldn't it nag at you that one of your sheep is missing? And they all say, Dad, come in. I think he's right. I mean, that's, that's kind of what he's hoping, that they would say, well, you know, you're right. We would go find that sheep. We would go look at it. So this is what happens. Jesus says, and when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and saying to them, rejoice. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. This is the scenario. This guy realizes that he has lost a sheep, and so he engages in heavy investigation, investigation and searching. He's going out, and he's, he's looking, saying, oh, man, is my sheep back here? No, it's not back here. And so he walks a little further. He says, my, my sheep under here? No, my sheep's not under there. So he walks a little further, and he is continuing to pour himself out until when? Until he finds the sheep. What's the duration of his search? He searches until he finds it. And how does he respond when he finds it? throws it up on his shoulder. He's rejoicing. He's overjoyed. And the text tells us that he goes back to uh, the sheep. Likely he drops the sheep off. He goes back to his home. He grabs his friends and his neighbors. And he, he tells them, he said, come, party with me. You guys, you need to come party with me. They say, well, well, tell us what's going on. He said, that which was lost has been found. I recovered my sheep. I'm celebrating. You need to come party with me. And then, 
You guys have never owned sheep, so you don't get that. (laughs) Going off of that point, verse 7, Jesus says, Just so, or in the same way, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus isn't pointing at self-righteous people that don't think they need repentance. What he's talking about there, he says, look, there is joy in heaven over your salvation and mine. Heaven is, is joyous over our celebration, but there is increased, there is a celebration, there is increased celebration and demonstrable displays of joy when one person repents. He says, look, this guy went out, he found his sheep, he came back, he was overjoyed, he celebrated, he calls his friends and neighbors. But the text tells us in verse 7 that even so, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. You recognize when a man, woman, or child comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when they turn their life and surrender it to him, all of heaven erupts in, in this massive party. That's what that's the picture we see here. That's the picture we see here. That when you came to faith as a child or as an adult, all of heaven said, are you kidding me? Melanie finally came to faith and they rejoiced and, and, and heaven broke out in party and celebration. Jesus looks at his crew just the same way I'm looking at y'all. And he, effectively, he realized that they weren't really allowing this to penetrate their hearts. And so he goes on. He goes on, he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the whole house and seek diligently until she finds it? This lady, her entire sum and fortune is represented in ten days' wages. She loses a tenth of her fortune. He said, look, what woman out there, if she lost a tenth of her fortune, all the money she had, she wouldn't go into her house with very little light, light a candle, and get down on her hands and knees and be, just be searching for it. She's like, is it under this? No, it's not under this rug. Did my husband, did he put it on his? No, he didn't put it. And so she's searching, she's sweeping, and she's looking everywhere, frantic, determined, bound, and term, determined to find this thing, not stopping until she does. And when she finds the coin, how does she respond? Look here, verse 9, when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me for the coin that I lost, I have found. She's so tremendously overjoyed. She's returned this coin which completes her collection, which adds full value, and she's found 10% of her wealth over again. Jesus says, just so, verse 10, I tell you, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is looking at those things that happen in terra firma, those things that happen in our community, those things that happen that we're intimately acquainted with. And believe me, I hate losing things. I lose something at home and I tear everything apart looking for it. I lose things searching for the thing I lost because I'm taking them and I'm placing them. Oh, this is a good place for this. I'll never lose this again. This is a place for this. Look, we lost Graham's birth certificate. We're never going to find that thing. And it still bothers me every morning I wake up. I know you can get another one made. That's not the point. I want that one. It, 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 it eats at me. It nags at me. And the point Jesus is making is those things that are found here on earth pale in comparison to when God goes out and he finds this lost person. He brings them into his kingdom. He says when this happens, a party breaks out all over heaven. A party breaks out and God the Father is presiding over this joyous celebration. Leading in with these two accounts, 
Jesus moves into a much longer story to highlight those things he saw in the scribes and the Pharisees. Now look here, he says, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. This is what's taking place. This man's got two sons. He's got a younger son. He's got an older son. The younger son comes to him and effectively says this. You know how, like, at some point you're going to die? Dad says, yeah, I know that. The son's like, and, and I'm going to get, like, a third of your stuff. And older brother, he's going to get half. He's going to get two-thirds of your stuff. Dad's like, yeah, I know what that is. I know how that's going to work. I'm, I'm familiar with this. I've heard this before. Yeah, I, I want that to happen now. I, I, I want that to happen now. No, like... Some of you are looking at me like, oh, this is casual conversation. This is not something I'm comfortable with. When I go home to visit my parents and my mom walks around the house and she's like, you and your brother just need to figure out like who wants this chest of drawers and, and who wants this saddle of your dad's and who wants this hat. I'm just like, I'm not talking about this. Like, you're, you're a lo- are you sick? Are you sick, mom? Are you sick? She's like, no, I'm not sick. Because we're talking about you dying. She's like, no, you just like, you need to have this conversation. And I say to her, look, I'm a whole lot more comfortable with some lawyer I don't know telling me at the point you die, this is what you got. I'm just like, such a sweet lady. I'm like, man, I gotta go on, I gotta go on Craigslist and list this thing, because what am I gonna do with this? And so, y'all do the same thing. So the son goes to the dad and says, Dad, I want this stuff. And what does the father do? Is he insulted? Is he, does he yell at the son or reject the son? No, the passage tells us that he divides up the property. He gives to the younger son one-third. He gives to the older son two-thirds. Quite simply, he, just, he turns the, the, the property over to them. He gives it over to them. Now look here in verse 13. It says, Not many days later, the young son gathered together all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. This is what he's doing. He's having an incredible yard sale. This is what this is telling us in that he gathered all the property to himself. It's not that he said, I got these sheep and I got these camels and I got these robes and I got these tents. No, man, he is having a fire sale. He is having a liquidation event. He is taking everything his father gave him and converting it to cash that travels well. Do you know what I mean? Like he's saying, look, dad gave me this. Oh, man, I bet I can get 50 denarii for that. Dad, dad gave me that. Oh, man, I know, I know a guy down the road. He wants a camel. I'm going to hook him up. I'm going to give me some cash, and I'm going to head out. So as soon as he is able to convert all of these possessions to cash, he heads out into a far country. Now, how did he live? Does he go there and set up this, this massive state to seek to rival his fathers? He goes, and he goes to the far country, and he creates this empire. And he says, Dad's going to be so impressed. Look what I did. I'm a, I'm a self-made man. No, in fact, the text tells us, look at this. There he squandered his property in reckless living. He did everything he'd ever wanted to do in his time, in his way. And nothing he bought had any lasting value. Nothing he bought had any lasting value. None of it made any lasting or or considered contribution to anybody else around him. He's at the bar, he's buying drinks for everybody. And they're like, man, you're the good time guy. He's like, that's right, set it up, put it on my tab. And he is spending through everything. And everybody loves him. And he is the life of the party. The tragedy hits. Verse 14, when he had spent through everything, a third of his father's estate. 
a third of the property it took his father a lifetime to put together, he blows through in an incredibly short period of time and has nothing to show for it. The property that his father graciously entrusted to him, turned over to him, surrendered to him, he blew through it like there was no tomorrow. He wasted it. He squandered it with reckless living. The only thing he did with any intentionality is spending through all of it. But man, things are about to get really bad for this guy. You see, at the moment that he had spent through everything, everything went bad for everyone in that country. He was broke and everybody was hungry. He was broke and everybody around him had nothing to eat. The text tells us that a severe famine hit that land. So right at the moment where he needs some of these friends he's been building up, he looks around and no one anywhere has anything to eat either. And he starts thinking, well, this is unfortunate. This is... Who knew you could spend money so fast? I remember, uh, you know, I lived overseas and my, my brother came to the U.S. for college and if he's listening to this, I'm just, I'm not looking forward to Christmas. But, and so my brother's in the States, y'all, and, and we're living in Norway still and my parents set up a little checking account and they put money in there for him. This is gonna be real awkward at Christmas if he hears this. And, 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 and occasionally I'd be upstairs and I'd hear my dad say, can you add... And I think, is he talking to me? I wouldn't respond because like, nobody wants to respond to that question. Can you subtract? And I'm just like, oh, man. Now he's asked me two questions. I still haven't responded. And then, son. And I knew he wasn't talking to me. My brother, he thought as long as he had checks, there was still money in the account. And my parents are calling him from Stavanger, Norway, to Kilgore, Texas, because their bank has frantically called them and said, you have overdrawn again. You have overdrawn again. This is the type of intentionality this son heads out in. He is spending everything he has, and in some ways he is surprised when he reaches the bottom and there's nothing left. He looks around, everybody's hungry, nobody's going to offer him a job, and so he goes and he begs himself. Verse 15, he went out and he hired himself to one of the citizens. This gives us a picture that he begs someone to give him a job. He begged someone, he begged a citizen of that country to give him a job. And you know what job he got? He got the worst job possible for a Jewish person. He got a job tending pigs. He got a job tending pigs. It was the worst job he could possibly imagine. And now here he is as a day laborer ministering to pigs. He is a day laborer feeding pigs. And so he's out there in verse 16. And he's working in the fields and he's feeding these pigs. And he looks down and they're just... You know, you've, you've, if you've ever, ever heard pigs eat, it's a... I mean, it's this terrible sound, just like, oh, 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 that's nasty. Love bacon. That's nasty. And so they're out there, and they're eating, and, 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 and he looks down, and he sees them eating these carob pods. He sees them eating these, these pods that come off the trees, and they've got this little pea in there, and he looks at it, and he is so hungry. He's yearning with, with such desire to be filled, to no longer be hungry, that he looks at these pods, and he says, man, I wish I could have one of those. He's looking covetously at the food of a pig. And this is how bad things have gotten for him. The text tells us that as he is looking at this, that no one gave him anything. 
that gives us a suggestion that he might have even gone to his boss and said, look, I recognize you're paying me on kind of the subsistence level. I, I work, you give me just enough food to make it by. But look, man, I am really hungry. Can I have some of this? I know this is gonna sound weird, but can I have some of this pig food? His boss says no. His boss says no. He wanted it, but no one would give him anything. Hmm. Look here in 17, the story's about to turn. 17 tells us that when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to eat, but I perish here with hunger. The story stops there, and we get this picture that he's a kid that recognizes that he messed up. If the story stops there, then we get the picture that he's this kid who woke up one day and realized, man, the day laborers working for my father have it better for me. And, and, and it's just that he wants this reversal of fortune. It doesn't look like that he's had this great illumination, but simply that he wants this reversal of fortune. But look, it continues. It's not just that he realizes they have it better. He comes to himself, he comes to his senses, and he says at the end of this, I will arise and go to my father. We're still maybe tempted to think that, but look what he says. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. The degree to which he realizes he's fallen is shocking to him. Maybe he doesn't realize how far he's fallen. He comes to his senses. He recognizes, man, things are bad. I want to eat pig slop. Recognizes his father's hired servants, his day laborers have it better than himself. And so he says, I will arise. I'll go to my father. And look what he says. He doesn't leave with, Dad, can you hook me back up? What he leads with is, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. He recognizes that he has failed to honor his father. He recognizes that in that, he has failed to honor God. In his recognition of his violation of God, this is what brings him back. This is, this is what is bringing him into illumination. This is what heads him down the road of repentance. I'll arise and go to my father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is the degree to which he realizes he needs to make restitution to his dad. This is the degree to which he realizes that he has messed up royally. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In the worker structure... You've got the slave who the owner is required to care for, to feed, to clothe, to provide for. Below the slave, you've got the hired servant. This guy is a day laborer. You're not required to work him. You're not required to care for him. You're not required to even have any more work for this person. He shows up, you've got work, you work him. At the end of the day, you pay him. You're done. The degree to which you realize he's fallen, transgressed, needs repentance, we recognize here. He's no longer worthy to be called a son. He doesn't ask even to be called a slave. He goes all the way to the bottom. He asks 
or he prepares to ask that his father would make him a hired servant. He doesn't want his dad to be responsible for anything for him. He wants his dad simply to be able to use him if he has work to be done. Pay him at the end of the day. He's not seeking to reintegrate himself into the familial structure. He's not seeking to be a son again. He just wants things to be better. Recognizes he needs to make amends to his father and ask his father if he might extend mercy to the son and let him be a hired servant. I'll arise and I'll go. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, he arise and came to his father. Text tells us that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Son gets up, he's got the last bit of clothing that, that he has. He's walking, he's making his way from the far country back home. At some point along this path, we see that, that dad is out of the house. We don't know what he's doing. If, if it has been his habit daily to sit and wait and look off for the son. But what we know is that this particular day he is out waiting and he sees the son. And in seeing the son, this son who came to him and said, dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I wish I had all your stuff. This son who spent everything, this son, when the father sees him, he feels compassion. Father sees him. And the text doesn't give us an indication that the father sees him and says, I wonder what that little loser's up to next. I wonder what he wants from me now. The father sees him. And he has compassion on the son. So having compassion on the son, this dad does something that is completely culturally unacceptable for a man in the Middle East to do at this time period. He throws all all sense of right and appropriateness aside, and he runs to his son. He runs to his boy, seeing his son, who likely stinks of pig. He stinks of poverty. He, he still has fresh on him the rejection he had offered his father. This father runs to him, wraps him up in this embrace, falls on his neck, and kisses him. This is what he does. He sees his son. He has compassion on him. He runs to him. He wraps him up in the most awe-embracing hug that this son has ever experienced. He plants this most amazing kiss on him, all seeking to communicate one thing. You are restored. You are forgiven. You are welcomed. The boy feels this. He feels the warmth of his dad's embrace. He feels his, his mouth upon his neck. He feels his dad wrapping him up and shaking likely with tears. And do you know what the son says? He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Feeling the warmth of restoration, he still cries out and says, Dad, I messed up. Sinned against heaven, I sinned against you. He still moves forward in this display of repentance. Father lets him go, stands back, and does the most amazing thing. He's heard what his son said. He knows that his boy gets it. 
He sought to restore him in this demonstration of love, of reckless abandon and running to him, falling on his neck and kissing him. And what he hears from his son is that, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but look at what the dad does. It's so shocking in verse 22. Father turns to his servant. Father turns to his servant, and he says to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his hand. Put the shoes on his feet. This dad is moving to systematically restore his boy. This dad is moving to systematically move and restore his son. And so he he backs away. He's heard what his son said. He turns to his servant. He says, go get the most honored piece of clothing we have in our home. Bring it and put it on my boy. Go and grab the ring that signifies he's a part of our family, and you place it on his hands. You go and you grab sandals that remove him from slave status to family status, and you put them on his feet. And then you go and you take that calf we've been saving up for a special moment. And we've been, we've been keeping it separate and we've been pouring out our resources and fattening it up. You go and you take that calf and you slaughter it. And let us eat and let us celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found again. And the text tells us they began to celebrate. They began to dance, to cheer, because what they recognized is that which was dead was made alive, that which was lost has been found. They followed in the example of the angels of heaven. The son had been restored. He had been brought near. He had been made a part of the family again. His one-third that he squandered would never be returned. That wasn't given back to him. It's gone. It's not coming back. There are consequences to his actions. One third of the father's estate is no more. But he's been restored as a member of the family. Story ends there. We all go to lunch. We're happy. We're overjoyed. But we recognize there is another character we've not yet explored. The older brother. The older brother's in the field, and he came, and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. The older son is dutifully doing what older sons do. He is out in the field. He is working his tail off. He comes back into the house, and he hears singing and dancing. He hears celebration. He hears joy. He, he, he can tell that people are celebrating. So he called one of the servants. He said, essentially, what's going on here? What do these things mean? Servant responds. He said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Effectively saying, your brother is fine. Like we feared him dead, but he's fine. He's come back and your dad has called us all to celebrate his return. How does the older brother respond? Does he say, man, I'm so glad he's back. I really missed that little guy. I'm going to go in and dance it up with him. No. He gives us a picture of the same response of the scribes and the Pharisees. He hears that his brother has been brought near. He hears that he's come back. And his response is one of anger. He refuses to go in. So his father comes out to him and entreats him to come in. The dad who's just seen the younger brother restored goes out to the older brother and he is begging him, come, come into the party. Come celebrate with us the return of your brother. Come celebrate us that that which is dead has been made alive. That which is lost has been found. Come celebrate with us. The older brother, is, it's just like this is fuel for the fire. He's just like, Dad, you don't get this? Do you not? What, why are you happy? Why are you satisfied? Why are you celebrating? 
Have you lost your mind? So he responds to me. He says, look, look, Dad, in verse 25, these many years I have served, or other ways translated, I have slaved for you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you gave me no goat that I may celebrate with my friends. That when this, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? The son looks at it, and so he describes his own behavior. He said, Dad, my whole life, I've done nothing but faithfully serve you, slave for you. And you didn't even give me a goat to celebrate with my friends, but this son of yours who spent it recklessly, you give him the fatted calf? Now this is the comparison that the older brother's making here. Effectively, he goes to his dad. He says, Dad, you never bought me Something as trivial as a happy meal to celebrate with my friends. But yet this older brother of mine, you've taken him to this fine restaurant and and spent a fortune caring for him course after course after course after course. Why does he get treated so well and I get treated so poorly? Dad, your scale, your balance system is out of whack. I've slaved for you. I've poured myself out for you. Won't even refer to his brother. He says, It's this son of yours that's come back. I want you to carefully look at this. Look at verse 31. The dad hears the venom in the older boy's voice. He hears what he thinks is appropriate, his older son thinks is appropriate. He hears the way the older son feels about all these years and now his father's blessed treatment of the younger son. But look what he says. And he said to him, son. Effectively, he looks at him and he says, my dear boy, my child, there is no reproof, there is no anger, there is no, look, you're getting it all wrong. There is only my Son, he says, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He validates the son. He says, you're right, you are absolutely right. You have always been here with me, served me. But this thing, you don't get. You point at the fact that you wanted this goat to go celebrate with, with your friends. What I'm telling you is that all I have, all of my property Everything I've got is already yours. If you wanted to celebrate, all you had to do is go. If you wanted to celebrate, that goat was already available to you and so much more. Look what he says here. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, this brother of yours was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. The dad points out just as Jesus did in these other two accounts, that we must celebrate when we see restoration take place. Can I tell you that when we read the story of the prodigal son, we recognize that this is our story. And this is my story. And this is your story. We recognize that over the course of our lives that many of us have played a variety of the roles in this text. We've been the young 
young son spending recklessly, building up for things which weren't fruitful, which had no lasting effect. We've been living for ourselves. We've been the older brother, and we wanted to be cherished, to be loved, to be lifted up, and we've held in disdain those that have been restored. We recognize, too, as a church, that this is our church's story, or was our church's story. that there are times in the the past of this church when people came along and and, and they were hurt and they were angry and we cast them off and we did not want to see them return. And that's the hard lesson in here for us as a church. But this is the amazing thing, no matter which role you're currently in. The third character in this story is a reckless God who, as we read in Luke 19.10, Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And this God is drawing close to all the prodigals who seek to keep him at a distance. This God is drawing close to all those who have been cast off. And this God is asking us to do the same. We ask the question of how do we be the church? How do we faithfully demonstrate the love of God in Jesus Christ to those we see around us? By following in the example of the Father. We look to restore those who are far off. We look to allow God to restore our hearts. Some of us are far off because we have walked away. Others of us are far off because we have the same attitude as this older brother. God looks to bring both parties near to him. And that is our call. That is our follow-through as a church. If we're going to be a church that honors Jesus as his body, this is the type of thing we must manifest. This is the type of thing we must display. Let me pray for us.